Good afternoon and welcome to Startup Nation, our weekly show that celebrates innovation and entrepreneurship. Startup Nation is brought to you by Dublin Business Innovation Centre, where ambitious founders get support to start and scale new businesses. And at Dublin BIC, we work with startups to get them investor-ready, but also to assist them to raise funding needed to grow their business. And that's anything from seed round right up to Series A and beyond. So I'm Connor Carmody. I hope you'll stay with me over the next hour as we explore emerging trends in the world of technology and business. And I'm really looking forward to today's show because we're exploring a very topical issue. Many would argue it is the technology-driven issue of our time. It's a big priority of governments across the globe, a key concern for businesses both big and small, and of course something we as individuals are increasingly aware of as a threat in our everyday lives. It's a sector that needs no introduction to Irish people following the attack on our health service. And yes, you've guessed it, it's cybercrime, cybersecurity. And this morning, we're going to talk about the industry that has grown around this area with the purpose of protecting our digital assets and sensitive data, cybersecurity. It's a massive global industry, 153 billion, and it's growing at a phenomenal rate with demands for solutions escalating during the pandemic when more and more of our business and personal lives moved into the digital world. So today we'll be talking about these threats from phishing, spyware, ransomware and identity theft. And this is the perfect topic for Startup Nation as the opportunities for innovation and for new businesses are enormous. So let's get started. First up, we'll hear from Paul C. Dwyer, the CEO of Cyber Risk International. Paul is an expert in cybersecurity, risk and privacy. And we'll be quizzing him on how the landscape has changed in recent years and how the threat has evolved. We'll hear about the security industry and how it has responded to bad actors and we'll find out if it's even possible to get ahead of this threat. As I said earlier, plenty of room for innovation and entrepreneurship in this sector. So here to talk next will be uh, John Ghent of PrivacyEngine.io, and he'll join us to talk about building a cybersecurity startup. Privacy Engine is one of uh, Europe's leading providers of a range of services aimed at supporting organisations who wish to achieve and maintain a level of compliance with GDPR legislation. And finally, we will chat to entrepreneur Darren Sexton about his company Gardu. We'll try to understand how he has built this technology and it aims to provide companies with a secure, reliable and affordable compromise assessment within one week. It's timely enough given the recent events. So each week in our future scope slot, we explore trends in a particular sector and we're providing the global perspective, but also trying to figure out what's happening on the ground locally. We discuss discuss the challenges being presented and the innovations that are being developed to solve these. Um, so to start us off, I'm delighted to be joined by Paul C. Dwyer, who's the CEO at Cyber Risk International. Paul, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Connor. And thank you for joining us uh, today. Maybe, Paul, you're recognised as one of the, the kind of the leading experts in this space of cybersecurity. Firstly, set a context. What's going on globally in the world of cybersecurity? OK, so in the world of cybersecurity, if I just flip that on its head for a moment about uh, turning into cyber risks or cyber threats, because I think yes. really what we need to be aware of is the, the, the fact that an underground economy, and that underground economy is worth trillions and trillions of dollars. And it's been operated by a lot of what we call OCG groups, organized criminal groups, that are organizing this around the world. And it has surpassed drug trafficking as the number one crime because it's so lucrative, it's so easy, and it's very hard to get caught. Right. So there are these OCG groups, as you're calling them, these organized criminal groups, they are organized, they are prepared, they are in it for the money, I guess. Um do you have a profile like where where in the world are they based or where are they coming from or how how do they get together how how does this kind of work sure so 
there's different levels of these kind of groups. So we, we often focus in on, on what we call the OCG groups because they're the most organized. They're the ones with the most impact. And as you, you mentioned, the motivation tends to be money. And they're, they're kind of targets thereafter are, are those that will pay out normally in excess of a million euros. So they're after a pretty pretty large targets. But there's a whole other range of cyber criminals underneath that from what we call script kiddies. That's like amateur kind of uh, criminals working from the bedrooms, uh, trying this out in low-level scams and frauds, but still making a lot of money out of it to the mid-level uh, kind. So there's a lot of different variants. And also within the cyber threat actor group, you've got people who are motivated not just by money, but actually maybe for geopolitical reasons or ideological reasons, or just literally... If I was to coin the phrase for the crack, there's a lot of people yeah. that hack and break into systems because they want the kudos, they want the recognition, and they want to, to, to build up this big persona online. And we see no lot of that activity. So despite whatever their motivation is, um, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, they still have the same impact and it can be devastating to businesses. Wow. So there's a whole world of folks out there um that are that are doing this and i suppose is there a geographical aspect to this one often looks towards maybe the east or eastern europe uh, is that just a stereotypical kind of media thing or is there are there clusters where this is actually developing well it's a great question because the media does tend to to point towards russia but you know for a reason because i mean russia harbors a lot of these criminals and the reason they do that is because they use their services when they need them for geopolitical reasons whether it's interfering with elections whether it's um, industrial espionage, whatever they want to do for economic gain, they will also use those guys as well. So it's a bit like the sort of mafioso. Uh, we, we, we'll allow you to exist as long as you don't uh, prey on your own people. So there, there's unwritten rules. They, yeah. they can't target Russians themselves. They, they can't uh, affect any of the Russian businesses. Uh, and then they will they will use them to carry out whatever kind of activities they want to do as well. But there's also other areas. There, there's the People's Liberation Army in China. So you have a nation-state activity that was based targeting companies across in North America and Europe as well. Um, we see a lot of this activity which is geopolitically related. So there are lots of different complexities and lots of different levels of capacity. But we often refer to this as an unfair fight because you're fighting against, if you like, quote-unquote, sort of normal fraud, normal kind of scams and stuff for business. But if you come in into the crosshairs of a geopolitically motivated attack, you may be collateral damage. You may be part of that the supply chain piece. But with all that being said, what people can do with the most basic of cyber hygiene controls is defend against this kind of stuff. And you can stop an awful lot of it with the most basic kind of controls being put in place. Right. Before we get there, describe, if you will, what a typical attack, if there's such a thing, what a typical attack might look like. Okay, so a typical attack, we often refer to this uh, as a cyber kill chain. And there's normally about 10 stages to this, but I'll I'll just put it into a nutshell for you that normally what will happen is there'll be what we call open source reconnaissance. So in other words, what they'll do is they'll target an organization and they they will identify an asset or a target in there that they want to to, uh, 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 get them to click on an email, for example. And they'll use some sort of psychological tricks. They might might research you and find out that you're, you're into budgie gar collection or something like that, or, or, or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. And then they'll send you an email with, with some sort of social engineering within that email and say, oh, you're being invited to the Budget Gar Festival, and you go, you might click on it. And, and therefore, they're, they're, they're being called a payload in to the system, and then that will communicate out to what we call a C2 server, command and control server, which effectively then gives the bad guy remote access to your environment and is able to escalate things. But one of the most important things, or one of the most interesting things you'll find about that process is the very final stage of that kind is where they protect you. 
they protect you from other cyber criminals because this is a business and these people have invested time and money and energy and resources into breaking into your network so they don't want other bad guys to come along and go in there. So they will set up a defense mechanism around your environment. And there's two sides to that. They're not just doing it because they're altruistic, but they're also doing it to, obviously to stop the bad guys coming in. But they also want to know if you've spotted it there. When we often refer to this as the dwell time. That's the time from when the bad guys are in on your network yeah. and when they carry out what they're going to do. So obviously the elephant in the room is the HSE cyber attack and there would have been a dwell time there. That's the time they're in on the network to the time that they discovered the data was encrypted. And there's some sense that they were, that dwell time for in, in the HSE, which is a live example ongoing here in Ireland, that they, they could have been on the network, in the network for two weeks, up to two weeks. And two weeks would be nothing as dwell time. We've often seen it going into over a year, even close to two years at times. And, and this is borne out with statistics from, from FBI and some of the largest uh, cybersecurity companies around the world, where when they analyze these things, even in the top 2,000 companies in the world, that bad guys can be in on the networks for months and even years, as I say. Uh, and they, they, they would live in this parasitic uh, way where they're just feeding off, they're, they're watching the processes, they're watching how your business operates, they're stealing data, copying it, but they don't want to get discovered. And the longer they can stay there, the more blood they can extract from the host. In other words, the more data, the more money they can make. And effectively, that's what they're after. They're after data, because data is the new cash, and they can sell it and yeah. monetize it yeah. so many times on the underground. You had a lovely phrase there, uh, the social engineering, uh, and just going back to that a bit, where you said that, you know, because I was into budgies, they then start presenting me with, with things that might take my fancy. Is that kind of at the core of it, that you, to hook your target, you've got to understand what it is they like and then present stuff uh, to bring them on a journey with you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, the thing about technical defences is that when they're put in place properly, they're fairly robust and they do their job. So what the last line of defence tends to be the human. And where they can be your last line of defence and your strengths, if you have 500 employees, that's 500 people that can protect your business. If they're educated properly, if, they, if they're cyber savvy, if they know what to look out for, if they have that sort of cyber savvy good instinct to say, oh, this doesn't look right, I'm not going to click on it, I'm not going to do, you, you know, follow through to that website. Um, and you can, you can enable and empower those people, uh, 500 people to protect your business instead of being weaknesses and, and points of entry for the bad guys. And, okay, understood. And is there, this is then obviously a business uh, for, for, as you say, there's, there's many different levels uh, and you, you identified some of them. But at the top level, there's organised gangs whose, this is their business. Are and I presume the business model in two ways. Either somebody's going to pay you because you've gone into their into their system and, and you've locked them out, or B, they take your data and they sell it on the dark web. I guess that's the business model. Um, it's part of the business model. I mean, for example, um, this week alone, I, I received a, a ransom demand, uh, which was off completely in Irish, right? So, right. so there, there's basically a bad actor out there uh, who's part of the underground cyber economy who is translating things into Irish. And that might be their job in the underground economy of cybercrime. You'd have other people that will be creating phishing sites, other people that are giving access to email addresses, other people that are creating the malware, other people that will download it, other people that will launder the cash, put it through uh, what we call Bitcoin tumblers or cryptocurrency tumblers, and be able to launder the cash. So these people never, ever meet in the real world. And they just connect through these marketplaces. And because these, these marketplaces on the dark web, and because um, it's axiomatic that one criminal can trust another, they, the trust mechanism is these websites, are these marketplaces where they'll use double escrow systems, uh, where, where the guy in the middle or, or the entity in the middle takes a percentage of everything going through that marketplace. 
Um, and when you look at something like, for example, uh, Silk Road, that would have been one of the most yeah, famous ones yeah. that started off uh, as a marketplace, those guys turned a billion in their first year. Wow. Can you imagine creating a business on, on the surface web that did a billion in its first year? So these guys are entrepreneurs. They're innovators. They embrace technology. They're at the cutting edge of all of this. Um, and, and that's why they're so successful because they will innovate and they don't have the, the bureaucracy of legislation, of taxes, of employing people and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and there's no borders. The internet is flat, so it's not really region by region. Their whole mar- marketplace is the world from day one. That's really interesting because, you know, it sounds like it's well organised, lots of innovation happening. But talk then to a Star Wars analogy. Let's go to the good side uh, from the dark side and say, what's happening there to protect? And both, I presume there's innovators on that side. I presume companies are investing heavily in their defences. Talk a little bit about the other side. Okay, so, I mean, it's a cat and mouse game traditionally, where, you know, that we'll spot the bad guys are doing something, technology will be developed to, to thwart that and defend against that particular attack. But the real answer lies in leadership. And it's about empowering leaders at the top of the business so that they understand cyber risks. They understand uh, what that means to their business models, their digital transformation, uh, how they can turn cybersecurity into an investment rather than a cost within the world today, as we all appreciate the value of cyber risk management, good cyber security, good privacy controls, and it should be seen as an investment. So we're seeing a lot of innovation around, around that part, uh, because there's lots of tech and controls and always will be, but this is about people, this is about processes, and one of the parts is technology. But really what we're seeing is a lot of good innovation around education pieces from board level down. We're seeing a lot of innovation around being able to report back to the business in a meaningful way, so not with technical reports but reports aligned maybe to the business strategy. So you can actually make it meaningful for the board, meaningful net, that they can understand, like KRIs, key risk indicators, KPIs, key performance indicators. So they can actually understand it, as opposed to going in and saying, hey, guys, um, I'm the IT security nerd. We've just done a a (laughs) pen test, and we have 50,000 vulnerabilities. And the response from the board, so what? So you have to make it meaningful. Would would that... So I get that, uh, that, you know, the board needs to understand the investment required. But I presume, given the publicity that all of these attacks and this whole landscape has got over the years, I presume those conversations are no longer happening. I presume a board accepts mostly that they should invest. Uh, wouldn't it be nice if they did? <laughs> but unfortunately, that's not the reality. I mean, I, I, there's a certain aspect of, of this where people think, ah, it's something almost out of a James Bond movie. Oh, it's yeah. the Russians. Oh, they'll never be after us. The reality is, even for, for smaller, mid-sized businesses, they make up the backbone of the economy of every yeah. country, including Ireland. And, and they are the weakest point for them to be able to get in to systems, to work their way through a supply chain if they're after a bigger target. Um, and obviously, it leaves legal exposure as well in relation to to uh, um, cover it, it, for, from instance and so on from a first-party, third-party perspective. So there's lots of, of, of reasons why everybody has to up their game. And, and it's, you know, the reality is, and we saw this even with the COVID-19 virus, we're interconnected, we're interdependent as human beings, and the same from a business perspective on the internet. So we all have to up our game. There's no point of us thinking, well, I'm okay, Jack, what about you? Um, we all have to up our game, and it's in doing that that we're able to defeat this this risk level and bring this risk level down. So there's lots of analogies there with, with you know, the real-life sort of biological viruses and so on, but it's, um, it's from that point of view, it's the collective responsibility we all have, and I mean that right down to the consumer level, Connor. I mean, it, it can, we can't have, you know, uh, our mobile phone and a banking app and then blame the bank if we get hacked. Yeah, and, yeah. And find out that we haven't put up the patches on our phone and we haven't done the updates on our phone. 
Yes. So the onus is on us as well. It's on it's on the business and stuff. Um, the HSE is a fairly high profile uh, case that we've been talking about. You've come across some others along the way, I guess. Anything mm-hmm. uh, anything to point out uh, the, uh, of other notable ones that you've seen? Yeah, well, there's been, been lots of attacks. Um, and, and the thing the thing about, you, you know, when, when somebody becomes a victim of a cyber attack or cyber crime, it's often an instinct in media and so on to blame the victim. Uh, and I've often called this out in, in talks and so on. It's a bit like sex crime. We, we, we tend to, why are we blaming the victim, saying, well, how could you fall for that? Or what, what happened? Why are we there at that time of night? Those kind of things. But the reality is, it's them today, you tomorrow. We're all vulnerable. And yeah. there's lots of attacks going on in businesses, large and small, right across Ireland. Um, and, and we're dealing with a lot of them, and, and we're able to bring, bring the, those things in control and help organizations deal with them. Attacks are part of business as usual now. It's how you detect it, how you respond, and how you recover. So it's about resilience. This is part of everyday business. Data is the lifeblood of every business, yeah. especially in the health sector. It's the lifeblood of the business. We have to be able to let that lifeblood flow throughout the business to our business partners, to our customers, to everybody that needs that data. And we can't lock it up and keep it in a box. So there are going to be data leaks, there's going to be data breaches, there's going to be mistakes, there's going to be things that happen. But it's how we detect them, how we respond and how we recover is so important. And that's the board's responsibility. Very good. Paul, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. It was great to chat and that was a a tremendous insight into this kind of new world that we're all facing into. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. My pleasure, Connor. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Paul C. Dwyer, who's the CEO of Cyber Risk International. So each week we bring you an innovator who has spotted a gap in the market, is developing a new product to address that gap, and now they're going to tell us the why and the how. And I'm delighted to be joined this week by John Ghent, who's the CEO of PrivacyEngine.io. Hi, John. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Connor, how are you? Delighted to be here. Great to see. Great to hear from you. Tell us firstly about Privacy Engine. What is it that you do? Well, it's uh, very very straightforward, really. Uh, Companies are processing and they've they have mountains of personal data that they need to take care of and we help them do it compliantly so it's a fast b2b platform um, privacy teams would basically use this in the same way that sales teams would use salesforce something something to that effect so it's really born out of um i suppose this massive increase in, in personal data which we're all familiar with from ai and iot and then there was a trigger point really in 2018, uh, where everyone started to legislate for this, and I think most people will be familiar with the likes of the GDPR, but in 2018, would you believe, there was more privacy legislation that year than there was in the previous century combined. So wow. it, was a, it was a massive sort of uh, a moment uh, from a privacy landscape perspective, and that trend really has continued on and on. And because of that, there's this explosion of privacy teams, and they're all trying to figure out how to actually do this the right way, and that's where we come in. So we, we help them with the technology, we give them, I suppose, the benefits of our experience and expertise in this space and, and help them actually smooth out that program problem. And just define privacy for me. So you're talking about you sell a SaaS product to privacy te- to teams who are trying to, to manage privacy. What exactly do you mean by that? Well, that's part of the challenge, isn't it? Like, I mean... It, most people don't really have a good understanding of what privacy actually means. I mean, it's primarily driven from really the GDPR. So most people would have heard of this term, yeah. the General Data Protection Regulation. And it really is multifaceted because you, you need to, there's, there's, there's rights that each living individual has. Yeah. Uh, and companies need to make sure that they are actually uh, complying with those rights. And then there's obligations on the company as well. So 
how they process the data, do they have a legal basis for it, do they have uh, mechanisms for assessing new projects, which is a big thing at the moment. Most new projects are sort of leveraging deep tech a lot of the times these days, and, you know, is there anything there that's going to compromise the ultimately the human the human rights of individuals as well? And then, of course, you have to manage a wider ecosystem, all of the third parties that companies use, and the obligation actually sits with the company to make sure that all those third parties are complying with the legislation correctly. So it's a massive challenge uh, for companies to try and get their, get their head around, and uh, very multifaceted, I have to say. Right. So they're trying to understand the how to manage their customers' privacy, these companies, and, and using your platform then as the basis to do that. Exactly, uh, amongst many other things. So the, the legal framework they have to do, they have to actually, uh, you know, employee management is obviously a massive one as well. We've seen what happened um, with the, the HSC over Indeed. the past couple of weeks in terms of people clicking on phishing emails and making sure that there's no breaches. That's all part of it. So again, just creates the, the challenge as well for companies to do it. So making sure that third parties are, are, are using information correctly, but also making sure that staff are using information correctly and not clicking on phishing emails and yeah. uh, not creating breaches as well. So it, 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 it's, it's a big bucket. It's a hard challenge to solve, no doubt about it. And yeah. that's, why, uh, that's, why, that's why we exist, really, to okay. help companies actually do that. And tell us a bit about your company. Um, tell us about, I suppose, how did you, what prompted you to develop this product or this solution? Yeah, I mean, it's so myself and one of our co-founders, Mike Morrissey, actually, um, before Privacy Engine, we actually had a couple of other companies. And uh, one was developing, uh, it was a large national system in Ireland, and the other one was, again, another large national national system in the UK. And in both of these uh, massive projects there were at the time, data protection was somewhere, I think it was three or four on the risk register, if you like, for these projects. Mm. And we... We really didn't know how to address them, but this was probably back in 2011. So we actually went to um, we went to lawyers. We got their view on on what needed to happen. They could tell us what the law was, but really had no practical uh, uh, advice on how to actually implement it. And then we went to sort of cyber companies and infosec companies, and they could tell us how to protect the data, but didn't really have a good feel for what the data protection requirements are. So there was this massive gap in the market that was very clear for us. And I suppose with our uh, experience in designing solutions, we felt we would be equipped to actually hopefully design uh, privacy platforms to actually address all of these. So it, it was very greenfield. It was very yeah. challenging because we didn't know what the solution should look like, which was an interesting thing to, to start off on. And um, the problem was clear, but the solution actually, even when we started, wasn't um, in many respects, you you were ahead of your time. You were probably ahead of some of the legislation. You were so you were building a solution for a problem that wasn't fully quantified or fully legislated well, this, for. I guess this is it. This is it exactly. I mean, I, I remember I was at a, a large conference in Dublin, um, and on the panel was on the main stage. I believe the topic was privacy is dead, <laughs> or something to this effect. Yeah, and I was in. Uh, I was obviously just looking at this with. Uh, be honest with you, with a bit of disbelief, looking around, and there's these tech leaders up on the up on the panel discussing the privacy was dead. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, yeah, this this doesn't this doesn't sound right. This doesn't feel right at all. It can't possibly be dead. Roll on another five or six years, and we understand the importance of this now. Everything that's happened from yeah, even, yeah. you know the U.S. elections or Brexit, and we can see uh, exactly why this isn't the case. I think it's, it's gone from a place where privacy was considered dead to 
privacy is actually it's paramount. Front and centre. It's part of this bigger front industry. It's part of this bigger cyber security industry exactly. that you're playing in. Exactly. And, and, and how do you develop solutions that really, I suppose, are at the intersection of human rights and technology to some degree? Because the problem becomes uh, bigger the more technology we roll out into the market. Um, isn't isn't that the kind of the, the nub of the cybersecurity issue? We're at this intersection of technology and 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 human engagement with it and privacy exactly. and, and trying to figure out what that world is going to look like. This is it, and we are still at the start of that journey. I mean, yeah. even the GDPR is only three years old, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, so there's still a hell of a lot of precedent. Um, and arguably, the, the the tech companies are running faster than the legislation can catch up with. There's no doubt they are. There is no doubt they are. And my own, like, my own background is a PhD in machine learning and computer science. So I, I do understand the risks with respect to everything that's happening with regard to AI and uh, and the challenges that are going to come down the yeah. track. So this problem is not going to go away. It's going to get much, much bigger. Yeah, indeed. Talk to me a little, uh, John, about funding. Um, so you've been on the road building the company. You've been fundraising as you go, HPSU funding, uh, I recall. And, 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 yeah, and, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we, are, we have been funded uh, by uh, Enterprise Ireland. Uh, it's been great. Uh, we're also funded by uh, Colonel Capital uh, as well, who are our, our primary VC. Um, we, we've tried to, um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we've got funding to get us to where we are now. And uh, it's it's always a tough road going getting funding, particularly in in an area which, like this, is is not necessarily well understood. Mm. Um, you know, there, there was a period when we were looking for funding where people uh, it was hard to convey even that that privacy management was a thing, let let alone that there was that there, there was a demand for a solution for it. Well, you were so, selling something that didn't exist, uh, arguably. But this is it. So it's hard for people to put their finger on it exactly what it is we were doing, um, even though we could kind of see in our mind, clear as day, what was happening with the GDPR and I suppose what's happening, more importantly, with the explosion of technology and how that's going to affect personal data um, down the line. But um, we, we got through that and thankfully uh, we, got, we, got great, we got great backers, I have to say. And um, uh, yeah, and, and, and on we go. So um, the funding journey in an Irish context is always interesting. It's, a, it's generally a very different experience, I find, to uh, a lot of my sort of colleagues and friends who, who would have went over to the States for funding, they, they, they seem to get a, an easier ride of it over there. Arguably, there's, there's, there's just a bigger pool of capital available in the exactly. US for, for, for firms. Um, is there So if you were one of the first entrants into this market, is there much by way of, are there much by way of competitors arriving in or is, is, are you a, a kind of a pioneer and there's lots coming behind you? Well, no, there certainly are competitors now, I have to say. And, and, and you know, there are just starting to emerge uh, some unicorns in this space as well. Right. So, so the market is, is, is being proven out. There's no doubt about that. But uh, we, are, we are, we were certainly one of the front runners. And, um, you know, I, I remember when we, when we started trying to identify even what the solution looked like took quite a long time yeah. uh, because you're, you're kind of breaking new ground. We actually went out to... When we started the company, we, we started with consultancy um, and we had to figure out what the platform should actually do. It was as basic as that. And we basically went around to uh, our customers and we, we actually asked them four questions, would you believe? We, we defined what we felt the platform should do and then we asked them, uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, do they like it? Yeah. That's very simple. We asked them on a scale of 1 to 10, is it unique? And then would they pay X for it and would they pay Y for it to help us sort of establish a price point? Right. And um, we did this and you know, God bless our customers' patience because we asked them so many questions. But we did this quite a number of times until we got uh, metrics that said, you know, we, we've got 
the kernel of the idea of what we need to build here, and then that's the direction we went in. So that's worked out quite well in terms of putting in all of that groundwork. And I, I do think were I to look at some of our competitors who have come through this space, um, I wouldn't be so sure that they, they would have gone into that level of detail. It's a great, it's a great insight, though, John. Uh, you know, the, those going out to a, your customers with four questions, spending the time to understand that that actually customers will pay you. How much will they pay? Will they pay a yeah. premium? It's a, it, you know, it's a great bit of insight uh, for, for somebody who's thinking of starting a business that they would actually put in that hard yards, those hard yards up front to figure out the customer proposition. John, yeah, we're, we're just out of time. Uh, can I just ask you briefly in about 15 seconds, what's your vision for the future? Well, uh, ultimately, we want to sort of empower the privacy teams as best we can. But I mean, we're very much looking towards the US now. The US market is probably where the European market was in around 2016, 2017. They've got a flood of legislation going through each of their sort of respective uh, processes. Virginia just passed a, a federal data protection act there last month. Um, so we see the US as a massive market for us actually over the next couple of years. So that's where we're going to find it. Uh, very... as, well, as well as the European market, which we're... Yeah, well of course. The very best of luck and thanks, John, for coming on. That was John Ghent of privacyengine.io. Um, following on from that chat with John, we mentioned uh, EIHPSU funding, um, but along with funding, Enterprise Ireland also offered a number of other supports. And I want to talk this week about HPSU strategic partner partnership offers. And that's a new initiative uh, where Enterprise Ireland are partnering with technology leaders such as Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Stripe and HubSpot. It seems like a super initiative. Through these partnership uh uh, connections. Enterprise Ireland clients can take advantage of credits, um, training, expert support, and all the networking uh, that they could that they could uh, need uh, to succeed. And the hope is that these offers will bring, in addition to the funding, some really good benefits to HPSU clients. And I was looking at it, and as an example of the support, I looked at the Amazon Web Services offer and saw that they're offering uh, ten thousand uh, euro in promotional credits for two years, fifteen hundred in promotional credits for. Amazon Web Services business support and that's valid for a year and it seems like a great offer and the other companies uh, mentioned also offer similar supports so I would urge you to check out those those uh, partnership offers, offers from Enterprise Ireland uh, and hopefully that's of interest. That's our inside track for this week. We'll take a break and come back with Darren Sexton so don't go away. So, welcome back to Startup Nation, our weekly salute to innovation, entrepreneurship and the technologies that are shaping our future world. And we've been talking about how starting and scaling a business is tough. Each week, we speak to a founder who is on that journey, who is succeeding to see if we can uncover some ingredient that might just inspire or motivate somebody listening. So today, I'm delighted to welcome Darren Sexton of Gardu. Darren, good afternoon and thanks for joining us. Yes, th- thank you, Connor. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, looking forward to our conversation. Good. We're all about cyber security and threats. Uh, but before we get in there, maybe tell us a little bit about you uh, and your background uh, before you, you get into the Gardu uh, uh, company. What, what, what's, what's the background? Yeah, sure thing. So um, I'm a Corkonian and uh, everything that goes with it, including the, <laughs> the good and the, the bad. Belief- well, in, including the belief that, that Cork is the centre of the universe. Uh, As a dub, I'll argue with you on that, but uh, we'll, we'll agree to disagree today. <laughs> well, I, I lived in Dublin for five years and uh, I fond memories of Dublin, but, uh, you know, I was always on the nice tune carriageway at half three every Friday. I it know, was, uh, I know. But look... Um, yeah, so, so listen, um, as I said, I'm from Cork. Um, I started in IT 
when I left school with a, a company called the Horizon Group. It was uh, founded yeah. by a guy called Samir Naji, yeah. who I think was probably one of Ireland's first uh, real tech entrepreneurs. And uh, I worked with Horizon for, for seven years in um, a couple of different business units they had, including their uh, IT distribution business. And, you know, those seven years were were. Oh, one of the most uh, enjoyable periods of, of, of my career. Right. And, and it was really uh, it was pretty much a start-up environment where everybody did a little bit of everything just to make sure the, the, the company grew. So it was a great learning curve, great great place to work. After Horizon, um, I suppose I got a bit cocky and, and, and I set up my own business. I thought it was going to be easy. <laughs> um, that, lasted, yeah, that lasted three years before it failed right. um, miserably. Um, I think that the learnings I took from that were very valuable to me, though. Uh, I learned, you know, I, I really learned about what was really part, important in life. And I learned really about who was important uh, in, in life. Yeah. And I think it's only after you, you fail at something that you, you really learn about things like loyalty and, and about how important your real friends are. Just stop uh, there for a sec. And what, when looking back on it now, why do you think the business failed? I mean, you'd had a good idea, you'd gone to the market. What was it that caused it? I, I think it was that there's, there's two things, really. One, um, it came to an end shortly after 9-11 happened. Right. But I, I, I don't think that was the, the, the real reason. I think the real reason was um, I was young, I was uh, maybe a, a bit immature. A bit cocky. Um, a bit cocky, too cocky. You know, I, I, I had a... I had a 4x4 four four Jeep and then I had an Audi TT. Of course, well for, course. First thing you same, had to buy, yeah. At the same time. And, you know, I I was trying to do everything. I was really good at winning business. Yeah. Really, really good at bringing money in. But I, I was just terrible at, at, at um, you know, money going out. Right. And um, I always swore, like, you know, that the first thing um, I need to do if I ever do anything like this again is, is just get somebody to help me and, and be that sort of you know, yin to yang type thing where they would keep me grounded and make sure that I didn't lose uh, the run of myself. It's a great le- you know, it's, a, it's a great lesson, Darren, because, you know, oh, in any, for any of us starting businesses, having that yin and yang piece, so you're really good at commercial, get somebody else to help you at the operational side of the business or get somebody to help you with the technology side of the business. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and But, you know, that the other thing is, I, I was, like I said, I, I said the next time I do this, I'll, I'll, I'll need to get somebody to help me. But I suppose the fact of the matter is the older you get anyway, the more the, the, the less risk adverse you get and, yeah, yeah. and the, the, the more the mature you get and you grow up a bit and, and you are, you're not as, um, as cocky as you were when you were young. Yeah, but, yeah. Some of, the rough, know, some of the rough edges get smoothed off. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, so, so after, after that, uh, I, I went to work for a company called Sage. Yeah. Uh, at the time, they were based in Tallow, which was great for me because I could get back down to Cork really quickly again. Yeah. And um, so I worked for Sage for seven years, uh, and I worked with their partners and their accountants um, to deliver financial and ERP systems. And there I learned the importance of CRM as well, and, and I, I was particularly drawn to CRM. Uh, and this was, I suppose, when CRM was in the early days. Just explain CRM to our listeners. So customer relationship management. Yeah. So at the time, you know, uh, Salesforce was just kicking yes. off at the time. And 
I, I really like the way that, you know, the, the customer became the, the center of your business and everything kind of spun off your, your, the customer as an entity. And, you know, how many tickets they had opened with customer support, how many sales opportunities uh, were open, uh, what, what was going on with their finance. And, you, you know, when you, when you looked at CRM, you could see everything that was going on with the customer. So when you called them, you didn't get answers like, Oh, but sure, somebody else rang me from your company yesterday about something yeah, else. Yeah, Are you not yeah. talking to me? Yeah. So, so I really learned about the importance of, of just that customer experience and, and, and how you engage with the customer. It's a lovely and, story about kind of picking up these lessons as you go, finding a partner, customer experience. You're building, you're building yeah. your kind of Lego blocks as you move towards Gardu, I, I, I guess. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, after, after Sage, I wanted to spend more time in Cork and I wanted to get into inside sales yeah. was becoming a really big thing. And um, also, cybersecurity was becoming a big thing. Yeah. So I got a, a, an opportunity to, uh, I took a role with McAfee in, in 2012. Yes, yeah. And um, I took an inside sales manager role there and I, I built out a team, uh, a Panamia team, where we were covering like, uh, I think it was 14 different countries. And um, it was my first time, you know, being in a real people management role. And um, I built a team out there, I think I had 21 direct reports. And I built a team from scratch. Big team. And a big team and made a lot of mistakes. And my first time doing multicultural stuff as well, where, you know, I was literally in a room with, with 20 people from, you know, eight or nine different countries. And, you know, you in the Cork Irish kind of sense, you you'd, you'd tell a joke or you say yeah. something funny, but you suddenly realize you're after insulting half the room and the other half don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And... <laughs> So you, you had yeah. to learn about all the different the cultures, the little nuances of, of translation and, and things like that. So, but it, again, great learning experience, building a team, scaling, scaling something across scales, Europe, yeah, yeah, something like that, you know. Yeah, uh, and then I, I wanted to move up, the, I suppose, the, the the career chain. So uh, after about two and a half years, three years, I, I took a role with Trend Micro at a director level okay. to yeah. do pretty much the same thing, and um, Trend Micro was a different type of business and uh, I really enjoyed it because McAfee was was this big kind of conglomerate at the, at the time. Multinational, like, oh, yeah. Yeah, it was owned by Intel and, yeah. and it was part of the Intel group, whereas you went to Trend Micro and Trend Micro was a, an Asian company. You know, the founders were from Taiwan. They were registered in Japan and they were much more focused on people and the, the the founder of the company was was a woman, and it was it was kind of the first company I was in where you know there was um, a lot more focus on on developing women and and, and uh, you know equality and and all that sort of stuff. Brilliant. And that was a, that was a great learning experience. That's probably one of the best companies I, I, I had ever worked for so, in that regard. Yeah, some lovely um, um, some lovely learnings along along the journey. Before I let you get to guard you and talk to me yeah. about that, we're talking today about big trends in cybersecurity and I'd love to get your take on you know what the macro environment looks like what are the big threats oh I think um well I suppose as you've seen the last couple of weeks ransomware is is the big threat at the moment and I think it's um it's going to continue um I you know even even this week I I had you talk about learnings I, I had a very unusual week this week in that um I was involved in uh, a situation where somebody was hit by ransomware right. and um, I was actually invited in to kind of, uh, I suppose, observe the interactions they had with the uh, the hackers. Yeah. 
and uh, you know there's Eastern European guys potentially possibly Russian but just to see the way they engaged and, and uh, how they went right through the process um, I put it akin to for me it was like when you ring someone like Sky TV and you go in looking to get your bill reduced you're, you're talking the first person you're talking to is trained in all your objections and their job wow. is to keep you as a customer and you're not getting a discount but if you stick to your guns and they they sense that they're going to lose you unless they give you a discount. They open up the discount conversation, and then afterwards they introduce, "Oh, I'll have to go to my manager," and then you're handed to a manager, and the manager comes in, and they're a lot more hard line, and they're, you know, it's just very interesting to. So to, you're you're saying that you know we were talking with Paul C. Dwyer earlier on, uh, who was kind of describing this organised. Uh, there's a number of different levels, but obviously there's these organised gangs. And what you're saying there is this has been run very efficiently as a business. They've got multiple levels of support. You know, you you they've hit you with a ransomware attack. They have a very clear customer escalation process in place to manage you to maximise the revenue opportunity. Yeah, it's 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 think of think of the, the Sky TV model. They're, they're, you're ringing and you're you're onto an agent and you're passed up the line and, and it's uh, very, very organized. Very, very organized. The, the only, I think the, the only challenge was um, I, I suspect they, they use because they're Russian speakers, they use Google Translate to um, okay. to to uh, to translate what they're saying into into English, and then it, you you kind of lose some of the nuances. But a very interesting uh, process. So I think ransomware is definitely something that's going to be around for a long time, and I I, I do think there will be um, based on some of the, the stuff I'm reading from the US there will be a rise in the need for even um, ransomware negotiators. Wow. Because, you, you know, there's a, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of companies in the U.S. that are, are hiring ex-FBI, ex-military people to negotiate with, um, with the hackers as well to try and um, reduce the amount of, of Bitcoin you have to pay them. So there's a whole industry opening up here. Uh, and we were talking earlier on about cat and mouse. Are we, in your sense, or in your view, are we likely to get ahead of the hackers or is this game just going to continue on back and forward, each side kind of learning from the other and moving along? Is this is this just a part of life now? I think so. I, th- I, I think that's the, the sort of the unfortunate thing about it is, is, um, is that it is. And as soon as you learn a new technique to counteract the, the hackers, they'll develop something else. Right, and you know it is that cat and mouse, and it's 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 uh, whoever's going to stay ahead in the game. Um, so it's it's um, it's definitely going to become more sophisticated and and slicker. But I think what's going to happen is that how we handle how we engage with them is, is the next step that people now are saying, okay, this is this is just becoming the norm now. So we have to come up with a strategy for. If we can't block them, if we can't stop them, then we have to have a strategy for how we how we deal with them. I'm actually going to write a blog, I think, in the next couple of days uh, around, you know, what happens immediately after you, um, you get, get hit by a ransomware. Yeah. Because if you Google, you know, what to do after ransomware, all of the blogs I'm seeing at the moment are about the, the you know, have, use your backups to restore, 
Uh, Which we've seen you know, in the HSE, you know, yeah. Yeah, lock down the PCs, disconnected from the network. But that's not really what happens in reality. The reality is you can't lock your PCs down because you can't get into them. Yeah. You can't, you know, the, 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 the damage is done. What you have to do is understand, you know, do I contact the guardie? Do I contact the police? Or do I engage with these guys? You know, what's the first conversation I have with them? You know, yeah. if you antagonize these people they're going to take a hardened stance yeah. and then it becomes like a you know t- you know i suppose two stags locking horns yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. good because you, you're you, you're going to lose that con- you're going to lose that they have your data <laughs> they have your data yeah yeah you know? yeah, yeah. So, so how do you engage with them don't antagonize them you know the irish way is kind of clomos them yeah. along and um, even if you tell them oh i'm going to bring in an outside negotiator Maybe they're they're going to harden their stance there. So maybe don't say anything. And and so so I think that's the next thing we've got to learn is is, is, is how the, do we engage with these people? And, so the whole and how hostage, the, the whole process. hostage negotiation process that we would have had yeah. on physical assets in the seventies and the eighties when there was that. Um, but what I'm struggling with, Darren, is. You know, you have these large organisations on one side that are skilled up with large IT organisations, massive budgets. And on the other side, you've got small, smaller gangs, potentially. Surely that's an uneven contest. In other words, in other words, that the hackers are at a disadvantage or is it that the old the old thing that they only have to get lucky once? Well, look, let's look at a different analogy. You know, why why can't uh, why can't the. um the Allied forces of America, Australia, uh, the UK beat somebody like ISIS. Why can't they wipe them out? It, you know, ISIS. You know, the 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 the, the, the terrorists are they're small organisations. They they're, they're they're more flexible. They they can move. They, yeah. They're they're all. You know, as soon as what do they say? You know, you cut off the head of one cell and another cell pops up. Yes. I mean, the, these guys are flexible and and they they. It's like that they're different groups operating on kind of under one umbrella and they all they they know what the mission is and it's uh, it's not complicated you know send out loads of software uh, get someone on the hook and uh, take their money but where so, did they where did they develop those technical skills i mean because presumably if you're going to breach an organization a large organization well resourced well funded you need to have a certain level of technical skills no well there's yeah but there, there's two things right there's there's two ways well, there's lots of ways. But one thing is, like, technically, if I wanted to become a hacker tomorrow, I can go onto the dark web and I can actually, I go back to the Sky TV model, I can actually go to a, a an organization on the dark web and say, I want to become a hacker, I want to ransomware. Can I buy ransomware from you? I will send it out indiscriminately to as many companies I, as I can. If I get any of them on the hook, can I come back to you and um, you help me extract the money and we'll split the, uh, the profits. profits? So, so you, you're, the hackers have moved from just being individual hackers to some of them, you know, developing companies where they resell their malware to lower level hackers and they split the proceeds. So not alone, the, uh, have you, not alone have you a direct sales model, but you have an indirect sales you model. Channel. Well. You have a channel. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah, yeah. And, and, and in places... In places like China, where um, I, I was on a call recently, um, where we were learning about the, the China cybersecurity uh, space, and uh, you know the, the guy in the call was was pointing out that the 
the government in China have, you know, hacking teams in place. And those hacking teams are focused on, you know, trying to uh, break into American companies and, and manufacturers and maybe steal plans of, of military devices, uh, vehicles, things like that. But these these guys that are trained and working for the government are allowed to go home and what they call moonlight in the evening. <laughs> so they can go home in the evening and use what they've learned and what they've been trained by the government to do in the day, they can do it at night to private companies around the world to try and extract some extra money. Wow. So it's 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 a it's a very uh, it's a very interesting, very industry. interesting space. We yeah. should uh, we should talk about Gardu. So uh, tell yeah. us tell us what you do. So um, yeah, so, so we're a cybersecurity vendor. We we have an indirect um, model. We sell through partners and. Um, I suppose what we do is uh, we specialize in something called compromise assessment. Right. So compromise assessment is um, compromise assessment is a technical audit of a network. Okay. Yeah. So traditional cybersecurity vendors will tell you that their aim is to protect your network from bre- being breached. Um, as as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, that's impossible. You, they're they're Hackers are always going to find a way in. Okay, yeah. so so from a guardian perspective, we um, we go we go to a deeper level, and we assume you've been breached. And what we do is we go into your network and we extract data from your network, and we upload it to our cloud analytics engine, and we analyze it against our proprietary threat models uh, to produce an automated report that um, identifies all of your your vulnerabilities, all of your weaknesses. Um, all your poor user behavior, poor network administrator behavior, um, and any indicators that you've already been compromised. Because we, what, we we heard earlier on uh, around dwell time, which is this notion that you know oh, yeah. guys can be sitting on your network for weeks, months, uh, even longer, and you don't know, but they're in there quietly beavering away, uh, gathering your data. Exactly. You, we operate in the world of you don't know what you don't know, and. Um, but I suppose what makes us unique in, in one sense is that, one, we can do this very, we can do our audit very quickly. So traditionally, maybe management consultancy companies would have come in, they would have manually extracted all the data from each machine that could have taken them up to a month. Um, they would have taken them maybe another month to, to collate the data and analyze it, and maybe another month to, um, to write up their report. Right. So lots of billable hours. Yeah. Um, lots of manual, lots of resources assigned to it. And, um, you know, the data is, you know, 10 to 12 weeks, maybe three months old by the time you get the report done. Yeah. Our, our, our system, we've developed a platform where we can do this remotely without anybody going on site. It's uh, fully automated and we can have a report issued within 48 hours. And because we do not, um, we do not, there's no need for billable hours. We can do our, our our value proposition is we can reduce the time, the resources, and the cost by seventy percent for this standard of report. So that that makes us a, a very very um, attractive to people that that really want quick information at an affordable cost. Because not everybody can afford you know a hundred grand to uh, to get this type of audit um, carried out. So you're in in quick, you're going deeper than before and you're doing it uh, in a very short space of time. I guess Absolutely. underpinning that is a, is some technology um, that you've developed. I'd love to know a little bit about your technology. Yeah, so um, we specialise in analysing Windows event log data. 
Um, so if, if you if you picture everything you do on your laptop is recorded in your Windows event log file. Yeah. Um, the, the I think if I remember correctly, the default setting is is that device will hold those Windows event log data for you know six, about six months. So when we go in, the data is already there. We're not putting something on your network to watch your network for the next six weeks to try and identify something. We're looking at data that's there, and it's holding data that's been there for a minimum of six months. So that gives us a very uh, wide and deep picture of what's going on on that device. Right. Now, if you've got a 1,000 devices on the network, you have a huge amount of data that tells you you know, user behavior, what's going on. We can identify lateral movement. We get a very rich source of information and we're looking at, you know, six months data from up to a thousand devices. And um, so we can we can get a very, very comprehensive picture of what's been going on in your network. And that 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 really is, is um that's our analytics engine and, and that's really, you know, uh, our secret sauce. And you've, the other thing, you've developed that yourself. You've built that we've technology. Developed that, that's, that's, that's our own technology. The, the other thing we've done is that getting the data up to the cloud is also difficult, and that's the manual process. Yeah. So we've also developed a, a piece of technology that um, um, a, an IT manager can, um, I suppose, open up their network to allow us go in and collect the data from all of the devices. So we collect the, deba- the data at the device level, we encrypt it at the device level and upload it to our analytics engine where it's decrypted in the cloud. Um, what, what, again, what makes us attractive is that you do not need to install our collection agent on every device. It's, uh, it's done across the network. So it has a low footprint. It doesn't uh, degrade network performance. And it's done really, really quickly. And okay. it's very hands-off. It's very, very automated. Very good. Darren, uh, I could talk to you all day, but uh, we're just about out of time. Um, I'm going to ask you to finish off. We ask all of our interview guests a a question, and it's a piece of advice for the budding entrepreneur. Um, If you had to pick out one piece of advice to give to a budding entrepreneur, what would that be? I I think it's just to to develop resilience. Mm. Um, Resilience is is something that's really, really important to me. And I, I fear for you know, kids coming up nowadays. Even even that tennis player the other day, the, the yes, lady. It, yeah. You know, it. You know, resilience is something that 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 all young people need to develop now. And it's it's like you know when you take advice from people you trust, ask for advice from people you trust. You know, lots of people will, will lots of people will tell you that you should be doing things differently, or there's a different yeah, way you should yeah. look at your business. And and sometimes. You know, we don't have the resilience. We don't have the confidence. You know, as Irish people, we might suffer from the imposter syndrome. And, you know, we think, oh, they must know better than me. Maybe I should look at what they're telling me to do. If you believe in your plan, stick to it. Be flexible. Have an open mind. But back yourself. But have the the resilience to, to, you know, just stick with your plan. Yeah, absolutely. Stick with your plan and, and keep going. Resilience. Thank you. Darren, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon and for sharing your story. Great. Thank you for having me. Thank really uh, enjoyed it. Thanks so much. It. Thanks so much. Bye That's bye. Darren Sexton of Gardew.
Well, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed our discussion on the cybersecurity world and the threats that we are all facing. Do join us again next week when we'll be looking at profit with purpose and looking forward to that discussion. We hope that the stories you've heard today will inspire you. If you have a great idea and are thinking of starting or scaling a company and you would like support, do get in touch with us at startup at dublinbic.ie. That's it for this week. Join us again next week at 12 noon for Startup Nation. 